Today's reading is taken from First Thessalonians, chapter five, verses twelve to twenty-eight. That's First Thessalonians, chapter five, verse twelve to verse twenty-eight, and I will be reading from the NIV version of the Bible, starting at verse twelve. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is God's word. Okay,、uh, come to the end then of One Thessalonians.、Um, uh, we start something new next week as we go into September. But、uh, let's pray. Let's pray as we look at this together. Our great God and Father, we come to a long list of commands, and. While undoubtedly there's an overarching、uh, ambition here for us, pray also that as we encounter your word this evening, you'll be at work in each one of us individually, bringing comfort where it's needed, conviction where it's needed, rebuke where it's needed. We pray so that we are those who live holy and blameless lives before you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well then, obviously we're about to start a new church year, academic year、uh, next week, and traditionally or usefully, in most years you'd say, okay, what, what are our ambitions going to be this year? What's、uh, what's the vision?、Um, what what are the key objectives for the year ahead? And it's a bit harder this year.、Um, I, I can tell you the plans for September in church, and pretty clear on October. But who knows what will be happening in October? Beyond that, it actually becomes quite difficult. I can tell you three years hence what I hope we're doing then. But planning is quite hard right now, isn't it? In lots of areas. But helpfully here in One Thessalonians five, here's a sort of timeless ambition that God gives us. So even we don't know in the detail of what to do in London in the year 2020 in the、uh, autumn of, we hear some timeless ambitions, and the thing that thing I think the thing that holds them all together really above all else 
is that we would as a church be blameless. Not perfect, it's not asking for that, but blameless, that is having a manner of life that demonstrates practically, that reveals that we have faith in the living God. Our lives are consistent with our declaration. You may well notice, uh, as it was read, there are a whole lot of imperatives here. I think they tend to come in trios. They sort of hold them together, three, three, three. But if there is one thing that holds it together in the letter of 1 Thessalonians, it's that the church is blameless. That's the emphasis. So when you get the concluding uh, or, or, or hope in verse 23, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. It's the same thing that Paul prayed in um, prayed for the church in chapter 3, verse 13. May God strengthen your heart so that you'll be blameless when he's giving his own example of how he lived amongst them. He says, chapter 2, verse 10, we were blameless. So that seems to be the, sort of the, the key idea that he wants to get across to this church. Oh, look, if I was going to sum it all up, what I want you to do in the next year is be blameless, not without fault, but a consistent pattern of Christian living is what he's asking for. How can we do that? How can uh, we be blameless as a church? Uh, three things for us to do, but crucially also alongside them, one thing that God does, okay? So we're looking at it like this. Uh, respect your leaders, verses 12 to 13. Do good to one another, verses 14 to 15. Shape your church gatherings, 16 to 22. And then finally, the Lord will do it. Verses 23 to 24. First then, respect your leaders, verses 12 to 13. What you get here is that the leaders are described in three ways. And the people are told to respond. Church is told to respond in three ways. Verse 12, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. So the leaders described in three ways. Uh, let's just work through them. First, they're those who work hard. Verse 12, it's a word that Paul uses elsewhere when illustrating farm laborers. Hard work. Uh, I grew up at farmland. You may not have encountered such a thing, but um, if you're a farm laborer, it's physical, and you go to bed and you sleep well because you've put in a hard shift. That's what you want from church leaders, people who get a sweat on, people who are exhausted by their work, those who work hard. Uh, then those who care for you in the Lord, verse 12 also translates it govern you so it's care in the sense of giving a lead giving direction not there's not so much the uh, uh, the nurse but more the leader who sets a direction those who work hard those who govern and then verse three those who admonish you in uh, verse 12 or rebuke you same word as verse 14 warn those who are idle and disruptive, warn, rebuke, admonish. It's one of the commands Paul gives elsewhere in, in Ephesians 6. Uh, parents are to admonish their children. So it's similar to chapter 2 in the parenting language. 
that uh, he gives. That's what church you should want in your leaders. Those who work hard, those who lead, and those who warn, admonish, rebuke. So obviously what you don't want, you don't want those who are lazy, you don't want those who fail to lead in any way, and you don't want those who just affirm you and say nice things. Now, probably, most people would say, oh, I, want, I want a hard-working pastor, and I want some leadership. Uh, being rebuked. Well, um, I'll live without that. If I've got to go for two out of three, one and two, and uh, the third, I'll just, I'll just tell myself off uh, when it's needed. You've got to be realistic about that, what we want. But Paul says that's what you want, those three. And then the church is told to respond in three ways. At verse 12, acknowledge them. Acknowledge those who work hard. It just simply means, I guess, recognize their position. Acknowledge them. Uh, hold them in the highest regard. Verse 13, in love. And then thirdly, live in peace. That is, don't wage war on your leaders. If there's something you don't like, of course, have it, have it out. Have a conversation with them. But don't wage war. Those three responses. I don't know what you think about that, but personally I am enormously thankful to uh, lead a church where the hard work, particularly of Bible teaching, the preparation that goes into that is valued, where people don't just want to be have some sort of spiritual chaplain, they want to belong to a church which is led somewhere which is, has ambitions, which wants to achieve some various things. A church where no one enjoys a rebuke, no one enjoys admonishment, but generally people, after the event, will say, oh yeah, thanks for saying that. Thanks for saying that in a sermon, or normally there's a slightly longer delay if it's face-to-face. -face. I didn't enjoy it face-to-face, -face. but now six months ago, what you said to me, uh, I'm thankful for. I'm very grateful to, uh, to be leading that sort of church. And I hope for us, this is the sort of things that we long for, or look for, rather, perhaps more appropriately, in leaders. I guess one question is, what, when was the last time you felt either from the Bible or even... Uh, biblically face-to-face, -face, any form of leadership or any form of admonishment. We all need it. We're all daft. We all drift. Sometimes we all need someone to come alongside and say, um, you need to stop that. That's got to change. We need that. Respect your leaders. Respect your leaders. Secondly, uh, do good to one another, more generally. Again, you get these sort of uh, uh, trios appearing here. Verse 14, and we urge you, all plurals here, all the imperatives in this little section, they're all plural, so they're addressed corporately to the whole congregation. Verse 14, you get three little groups highlighted. 
Let me read it, verse 14. We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. So three groups highlighted, I think, here. First, uh, uh, warn those who are idle. Back in chapter 4, Paul had taken on those who were not doing anything. They weren't earning with their hands. They were just being lazy. But none of that, he says. Stop those. No time for freeloaders in a church. Encourage the disheartened. That's a lovely phrase, I think. Those who are anxious, those who are assailed with doubts, and then help the weak. Could be weak generally. The main weak group in the letter probably is those struggling with sexual sin in chapter 4. But then you get this final command that applies to all of the three above, I think. Be patient with everyone. We all need that. I don't rebuke to myself. Sometimes it's easy to be impatient. You get impatient with the person who stumbles again in in, in sexual sin. You think, what, again? Oh, for goodness sake. There's a right sense to that, but you still walk with them. Be patient with the person who is disheartened. I think of one former member of, of CCM who's, uh, who's moved away. Probably emails at least twice a week still. And uh, all these, the, the questions are always, oh, am I a good person? Am I making the right decisions with my life? And, and part of me just wants to go, oh, it's the same questions every week. Come on. Well, be patient. Be patient. Jesus treats us with patience. Do all these, you know, do good to one another. Do you see, we've gone from the leaders to one another, doing many of the same things, actually. There's, there's the encouragement, there's the warning alongside. Uh, respect your leaders, then. Uh, do good to one another. Then uh, spend a little longer on this one. Verses 16 to 22, shape your church gatherings. Be a bit deliberate about them. Verses 16 to 18, All the verbs are plural, and I think it makes most sense that they go together with 19 to 22, as they're all addressed to what goes on when we gather as church, like this, in our strange times. Let's work through them then. Uh, First, uh, verses 16, let's read this little list first of all. Verse 16, rejoice always, pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. In Christ Jesus, do not quench the spirit. The three commands then, 16, 17, 18. Uh, what, are they, what are we to do with them? Verse 16, rejoice always. I think that means that when we gather as a church, we always rejoice. Now, different people are in different places. Some people are, you know, just experience bereavement. Some people are clinically depressed. Some people are just 
pulling their hair out in lockdown, or not the words, whatever we're in at the moment, um, just fed up with this season. Yeah, you know all of that. But when we gather, while mourning with those who mourn and rejoicing with those who rejoice, when we gather, there's, there's got to be rejoicing because we are gathered in the name of Jesus and he has saved us for eternity and he is very wonderful. So we rejoice always. There's always got to be celebration and joy in every gathering. Second little command, pray continually, not relentless, but persistent and serious for one another, for what's going on in church, for mission partners, for government. Then give thanks in all circumstances. Not all life is good, but there are good things to be thankful for, even on the bleak days. Heard me say recently, my mother is terminally ill. She's probably down to the last few weeks, I would imagine. She only became a Christian a few years ago. It's so lovely at the moment, amidst the distress, and it is pretty distressing seeing someone just shrink and shrink and shrivel. But she'll say, there is something I can give thanks for every day. There's a phone call. There's something that happens. There's something every day. And as I fall asleep, I can always give thanks to God for something. Well, we're to do that as a church. Always be giving thanks. That is hard in a, in a sort of culture which is not particularly thankful. And in a 24-hour news cycle world where things are always going wrong, you know, and how, you know how news works. Good news generally tends to take time. You know, finding a cure, finding a vaccine, that's quite a long process. It, it, it takes time. Bad news tends to be snappy, an event. Someone's died, there's a disaster, there's a building collapse, there's a devil storm, whatever it is. Um, so you watch the news, it's generally quite depressing. You do know that, don't you? That's why at the end of it they have a, well, here's a nice little thing, you know, just to finish the thing off. Because we don't want to leave everyone... That's how the news... And at the moment... I don't want to be trite, but in a COVID season, it is a bit. And so Paul would urge, you know, there's a sense of it, you're not denying what's true, but you have to push against that. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks. I imagine these three are all mutually reinforcing. When you pray specifically for stuff, you see answered prayers, and then you give thanks. I imagine all these things are reinforcing individually and for us as a church. That's the three commands of 16, 17, 18. Verse 19, we'll come back to. Verse 20, I think is a headline, and then you get three commands which explain it. Verse 20, do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test them all. So test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. I think that's how it works. Big topic, big topic I think, prophecy. And uh, let me do a very bad job in a few minutes on it. You can ask me afterwards. Uh, or text in, email in. In the New Testament, prophecy it was the same in the whole Bible. It's not just telling the future, not just foretelling, but it's applying what's already been said. It's forthtelling. So it is 
as well as this is going to happen in the future, it's this is what God has said, and here's how it applies. It's both of those. Now, what's going on in Thessalonica that Paul has to say, don't treat prophecies with contempt? I have no idea. But any utterance which claims to come from God, don't just dismiss it. You have to assess it, he says. Test. Hold on to what's good. Reject what's not. That's what you've got to do. How do you test something that's said, whether it's from the Lord? Topic. Let me just throw out a few things. One, you want to weigh it against Scripture, like the Bereans do in Acts 17. Two, you've got to ask, does it agree with the message of grace alone? For example, like Paul says in Galatians 1, if something doesn't agree with the message that you're saved, purely by God's grace, reject it and dismiss the person. Three, how does the prophet behave? Because Jesus would say in Matthew 7, you'll know people from their fruit, which is incidentally why it's very hard to follow a Bible teacher that you've never met, that you don't know. Quite hard to do that. Fourth, does it edify? Does it build up? 1 Corinthians 14 says it has to build up the church. There's a few things. And verse 19, I think, sits between these two sections on church. Don't quench the spirit through a lack of rejoicing, a lack of prayer, a lack of thanksgiving. And don't quench the spirit by dismissing it when someone brings the word of God to bear on your life. Either of those things would be quenching God's spirit. So look, shape your church gatherings, be deliberate. Let me make an obvious comment there. This list, verses 16 to 22... You can only really do them when you're physically gathered. I mean, you can have a go remotely, but it's so much easier to do, to encourage, to give thanks collectively when we're gathered physically. Just want to try and do that as much as we possibly can, even with the restrictions that are upon us. You want to shape your church gatherings. Okay, so look, respect your leaders. Do good to one another. Shape your church gatherings. Here's the last thing. God will do it. The Lord will surely do it. You have to, when you read the Bible, hold together God's commands and his promises. Here is a really long list of imperatives, verses 12 down to 22. And you've got to do them. You're commanded to do them. We're commanded to do them. You have to do them. But alongside them, God's promise. And you have to hold them together. His command that we live blamelessly and the promise that he'll be at work in us to do that. A command and a promise. You have to hold them together biblically. You drift one way or the other, you're in trouble. You, your life will go wrong. We try to put it in these daft terms. Years ago, years and years ago, uh, my mother was very keen that her children learned how to cook competently for themselves. Now, my sister was older, so she got all the training first of all. But uh, then eventually it became my turn. I was taught to cook various things. And I remember the slightly nerve-wracking week when I was told, okay, this week 
You cook Sunday lunch. You do it. Now, we were not a Christian family growing up, but Sunday lunch was quite a big affair. And uh, uh, there's always relatives there. Uh, uh, the matriarch was my grandmother who came every Sunday for Sunday lunch and was a pretty tough audience, smiled less than Simon Cowell. Um, and uh, you generally gave you the thumbs down. Um, you know, even my mother's cooking. Bit chewy this week, Pauline. Uh, you could get that sort of comment. Potatoes not very fluffy this week. Uh, you know, she was a tough audience. So actually cooking Sunday lunch was a big deal and a slightly nerve-wracking affair. And my mother said this week, you will do it. Now left to my own devices, I think it would probably be an overwhelming affair. But unsurprisingly, alongside the demand came the help. So she bought all the ingredients. She sat down and Help me work out the timings. Because actually a roast dinner is very easily. It's just, got, it's just maths. A roast dinner, really. you just got to get your timings right. It's one of the easiest things to cook out. If you, if you find, you know, don't be daunted by that. As long as you can do sums, you can cook a roast. She, you know, she, would, she did, sat down with me, planned it all, and uh, was there in the kitchen, which keeps sticking her head in every so often. Got the parsnips on. Um, you know, Yorkshire pudding, where's the, where's the batter? Where's the batter? You'll need that. Is the fat hot enough? You know, all these helpful comments would come alongside. So there's a command, make dinner, make Sunday lunch for the whole family. But alongside that, of course, I'll help. And in the end, it wasn't really going to go wrong because she was there. Now, that is deeply flawed on many levels. But the dinner did turn out okay. I just need to tell you that in the story. The first one, the first one was okay. Actually, uh, the others less good. But uh, the first one really was, uh, was actually was pretty good um, as a triumph. God says you've got to live a blameless life. That is a consistent Christian life. And in these sort of ways, and you do it together. Remember these commands, they're plurals. You do it together. But I am with you. And more than that, verse 23, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. The God who came and died for you in Jesus Christ does not do a half job. He completes his work. He'll do it. He'll work through you as we seek to live a blameless life for him. Let me lead us in prayer together. Our great God and Father, thank you that what you command you are at work in us so that we'll achieve. Father, thank you that alongside all these imperatives is the promise that you'll do it, you'll keep us, you'll assist us so that we can live a consistent, blameless Christian life. Thank you for that encouragement. Thank you that these commands are not meant to be crushing, even though they're challenging, even though this evening we may feel there's something we need to readdress or address in our lives because we're going awry. But Father, thank you that you're at work within us. And so would we 
therefore, labour to live a blameless life for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.